Hello and welcome to Clarity Talks, a brand new series of podcasts from Diligentsia. Over the coming weeks, we will be speaking to an eclectic range of experts, all with the aim of bringing clarity and insight to topics and issues of the day. To kick things off, my colleague Rose Johnson from our Middle East desk talks to Fitzroy Morrissey, an academic at All Souls College just down the road from us here in Oxford, and author of the recently published and acclaimed book, A Short History of Islamic Thought. Their subject is Islamic finance, a central yet poorly understood feature of how business in the Islamic world functions. You're listening to Clarity Talks. Good morning, Fitz. Morning, Rose. It's a pleasure to have you here today in our Oxford office to discuss Sharia finance. Thanks very much for having me. It's really exciting to be here. So today I was thinking we would discuss the origins, principles and development of Islamic finance. But I thought that first we should start by defining what precisely is Islamic finance. Perhaps one could define it as finance that is governed by principles of Sharia. And so perhaps the best place to start would be just unpacking the term Sharia and the history of it. Often Sharia is translated as Islamic law. And I think that's a relatively helpful place to start. But I think if we look at how the term has been used within the Islamic tradition historically, it's probably more useful to think about it in a broader sense than how we would normally understand law in the context of a modern secular nation state, for instance. I would understand Sharia as a comprehensive ethical and legal system of life governing everything from questions about how to brush one's teeth or how to sit in the mosque to questions concerning life and death. The Sharia is founded on a number of sources and the first source, of course, is is the Quran itself. But the actual legal content of the Quran is relatively limited. So from quite early on in Islamic history, it was recognized that if one were to build Sharia as a comprehensive system of life, then the legal content of the Quran would need supplementing somehow. Another important point to note when thinking about Sharia is the existence of different legal schools or schools of legal thought. It's accepted within Islamic legal thinking that there is a diversity of opinion between these different schools and that it's not necessary to follow one particular school. So you do have this acceptance, this tolerance of Mm. diversity within the Islamic legal tradition. How within that tradition is finance and trade and economic issues, how, how are those matters treated? We have to go right back to the Quran and the context in which the Quran was revealed, which is in early 7th century Western Arabia, the region known as the Hejaz. Muhammad was a native of Mecca. Mecca was also a centre of trade. It seems that the Quraysh, which was the tribe into which Muhammad was born, were the leaders of this trading system. And it seems that they particularly traded in leather, clothes, perfume, livestock. And so the context in which Islam emerges is one of trade, of economic activity. And this is something which is reflected in the Quran, which actually uses the language of trading in many places. 
Indeed, it's been said by one scholar of Islam that Allah is presented in the Quran as the ideal merchant. He holds people to account. He notes down people's deeds in, in a ledger. There'll be a day of reckoning on Judgment Day. All this kind of language is a language of mm. um, of trade. And the Islamic tradition also tells us that Muhammad himself was a merchant prior to receiving the revelation of the Quran. He was engaged in trade. We're told that he went with one of his uncles on a trading trip to Syria when he was younger, that he was employed by the woman who had become his wife, Khadija, as a trader. And so this is the context in which the Quran is said to have been revealed and Islam emerges. And the Quran not only uses the language of trade, but it also discusses matters relating to trading and commerce. And it expressly says, that, for instance, that God has permitted trading. And so there is, I think, a positive attitude towards honest trading in the Quran. And this is also echoed mm-hmm. in the Hadith, the sayings of the Prophet. And consistent with the message of the Quran, we also find a positive attitude to what's called kasb, which is um, can be translated as earning a living in the Islamic legal literature. For instance, very famous Islamic theologian, legal theorist and mystic called Al-Ghazali, who lives in the 11th century. He says, for instance, that the honest merchant is better in the sight of God than the pious worshipper. And that to abandon honest trade, he says that this is forbidden by the religious law. The famous North African uh, philosopher of history and jurist Ibn Khaldun, who lived in the 14th and early 15th century, he shows a remarkable interest in economic questions and questions of fiscal policy and sometimes actually seems to anticipate modern economic theory. So it's been said, for instance, that Imkhaldun seems to foreshadow the uh, idea of the Laffer curve, you know, that when taxes are low, it will encourage greater economic activity and therefore the result in a higher tax take. And that when taxes are higher, by contrast, it will discourage activity. And so the, the state's tax take will be lower. It's also been said that Imkhaldun anticipates the labor theory of value, you know, that the value of a good derives from the labor that's been put into it. And these are you know, these are ideas which we typically associate with classical economics of you know, Adam Smith and Ricardo. What's the actual meat of it? What are the defining characteristics of Sharia finance? If there's one thing that everyone knows about Sharia finance, it is the ban on interest. So the Arabic term that uh, is translated as interest in this context is riba. The Quran forcefully condemns those who take riba. The Quran, chapter 2, verse 275, says that those who devour riba shall rise up before God like Satan has demented him by his touch. Um, so this is a very strong condemnation of riba. But then there's a the question of, you know, what, what exactly is the Quran referring to by this term riba? So there's another verse in which the audience of the Quran are instructed not to live on riba, doubling your wealth many times over. Having said that, the most common tendency over history and also today has been to equate riba with any kind of interest. And so when we look at the history of the Islamic finance and Islamic banking movement, we find that in a way it begins with the establishment of Islamic banks, which which are interest-free. So the 
Islamic banking movement is often said to have begun in 60s in Egypt with the establishment of uh, an interest-free bank. So within Islamic finance, interest, all kinds of interests are expressly forbidden in accordance with the Quranic prohibition of riba. And instead of interest, the Islamic finance tradition promotes the principle of profit and loss sharing two mechanisms held up as being particularly important, and these are called Mudaraba and Musharaka. They work in a fairly similar way, and in both cases, profit and loss sharing is the underlying principle. So in Mudaraba, investors lend money to a borrower who can be seen as an entrepreneur, who invests his time and effort and expertise in a particular enterprise, and both the investors and the entrepreneur then will share in either the profits or losses of the enterprise. In Musharaka, the borrower also invests his own money into the scheme. And these mechanisms have been compared to venture capital. So if we think about the way in which venture capitalists invest in startups, we can see that you know, they will decide on whether to invest based on the potential profitability of the scheme rather than the creditworthiness of the borrower like a bank would. We see that the, the venture capitalist will share the profits with the entrepreneur according to a predetermined ratio. And venture capitalists often actually get involved in the running of the project. And this is something which the Islamic finance tradition also encourages. So musharaka literally means mutual participation. The idea is that both the lender and the borrower are committing they're committing to the scheme and that they'll share in the profits if it's successful or the losses if it's not. In practice, there are also a number of other debt financing mechanisms used. So a very common one is called Murabaha. And this is a form of markup transaction in which a bank will buy a commodity and then sell it to the borrower at a agreed upon marked up price that will be paid at some predetermined point in the future. So this generates an almost guaranteed profit for the bank in the way that interest would. But what makes it acceptable from an Islamic finance perspective is that the bank, in buying this commodity, which it then will sell to the borrower, takes on an element of risk in the short time that it owns the commodity. And this is an important principle within Islamic finance, that there should be some kind of sharing of the risks involved. And the other thing that makes it acceptable from an Islamic finance perspective is that it's backed up by an asset. And so there are a number, in a sense, of, of ways round lending and interest that the Islamic finance tradition uses, but which are held up as being in accordance with Islamic finance principles. But there are other important elements to Islamic finance as well. So another one is zakat, which can be translated as almsgiving. And in fact, in the Quran, almsgiving is, in a way, presented as the other side of the coin from riba. So Zakat is famously one of the five pillars of Islam. And in the Islamic legal literature, it's actually described as a form of worship. Now, historically, um, even though zakat was a duty of 
Muslims based on the Quran and the legal literature. Zakat generally wasn't something that was collected by the state. But in recent times, in the 20th century, we see several examples of modern states seeking to Islamize their economies who have made the implementation of centralized zakat system a pillar of their efforts to, to create an Islamic economy. So we see this in, in Pakistan in the late 70s and 1980s under Zeal Haq. Malaysia has also implemented a state-managed zakat system. If we look at kind of the contemporary Islamic finance scene, I think we also see a number of other interesting elements. So there's Islamic insurance market called Takaful. There are Islamic mortgages. There is Waqf, which is the principle of charitable endowments, which is another element of the Islamic finance system. And there's also the principle that all investments, all trade should be only in halal products, so products which are permissible from an Islamic legal perspective. So products such as wine or, or pork are not acceptable from a Sharia perspective. And so, so companies which invest in or trade haram products are forbidden one last one that's worth mentioning is that is the principle of hazard or uncertainty. So the Islamic economic tradition is always keen to avoid excessive uncertainty in a transaction. And so, you know, in the in the classical tradition, this is you know the examples given are, for instance, you know, a trading deal which involves the trade of an unborn animal, let's say, is liable to be hazardous. You know, it's, it's hazardous because one doesn't know whether the animal's going to be healthy, let's say. What strikes me is that it seems Islamic finance is driven by both ethical considerations as well as more practical considerations to ensure a stable and healthy economy. Do you think that it's more driven by the ethical considerations or by the practical considerations? So I think there's certainly a very strong ethical orientation within Islamic finance and Islamic economics. So that there are some key and recurring principles in Islamic economics, ethical principles such as the importance of realising justice, that transactions and commercial dealings should be in the, the common good. And so I think Islamic finance does cater to a group of people who want to live out their lives in accordance with the moral vision of the Quran and the ethical teachings of Islam. I think one interesting element of this that is discernible in recent years with the development of you know, ESG principles in the conventional financial sector as well, we see that Islamic financial institutions often seek to put forward Islamic banking or Islamic finance as you know, inherently in keeping with these ESG principles. So yeah, there, there's very clearly an important ethical dimension, but I think there's also a pragmatic dimension, as you've said. And one often reads in the Islamic economic literature the idea that if Islamic finance principles were properly implemented, then economies would be more resilient, less prone to, to crashes. So I think this kind of pragmatic view is also very common and seems to actually be becoming more common in a way. So that brings us quite neatly to the prevalence of Sharia finance across the Islamicate world and how that has changed over time, particularly the 20th century. So I think it's important to remember that Islamic finance and Islamic economics, kind of with a capital letter, are modern phenomena. And we've been talking a lot today about the pre-modern roots of these phenomena. But 
these are really movements which arose in the proper sense in the, in the 20th century, and they're, they're connected to wider movements of Islamic reform, attempts to modernize Islam, to strengthen Islam uh, in the face of the challenges uh, brought by the modern world. And so, the, as I've said, Islamic finance is rooted in Islamic economics. This is an intellectual tradition which really emerges in South Asia, in what's now India and Pakistan, in the early 20th centuries. But then there were early experiments in Islamic banking and finance. But the real key turning point in the history of Islamic finance is the 1970s, after the boom in the price of oil. And this obviously brings tremendous wealth to uh, a number of Muslim-majority states, particularly those in the GCC and the Gulf. And it created the conditions in which Muslims could imagine alternative financial institutions and the development of an alternative uh, Sharia-based economic system. And so in the 1970s, we see the establishment of a number of key Islamic financial institutions, both banks, but also educational institutions. The Islamic Development Bank was founded in 1975 in Jeddah, in, in Saudi Arabia, and it was financed mainly by the oil-producing Arab states, so Saudi, UAE, uh, also Kuwait, Libya. And this is an institution, still, still going strong today, which provides Islamic financing mainly for infrastructure development projects in Muslim-majority countries. Around the same time, we see the establishment of the Dubai Islamic Bank, and this remains one of the leading Islamic financial institutions. And this kind of creates or initiates a wave of new, specifically Islamic banks. At the same time, there are also a number of research centers and Islamic economics conferences set up in particularly in the Gulf and also in Malaysia in the, in the 70s and 80s. And they're important because they allow, in a way, the, the intellectual foundations of Islamic finance to be developed. In the late 70s and 80s, uh, we see a number of state-led attempts that I've already mentioned to Islamize their economies in, in Pakistan and the Zeal of Haq, in Iran after the revolution, in uh, Malaysia... So alongside these specifically Islamic banks and also research centres, in the late 20th century, we also see the emergence of a new phenomenon whereby large conventional banks, both in the Middle East, but also Western banks like HSBC or, or Deutsche Bank, Barclays, they begin to provide Islamic banking sections, which are separated from the main operation of the bank. And these set sections have their own Sharia boards. So these are boards of Islamic legal specialists who are tasked with ensuring that transactions are carried out in compliance with Sharia principles. You know, this is um, a really important moment where we see, in a sense, Islamic finance being integrated into the mainstream banking system. We also see it in Muslim-majority countries where very large banks like the National Commercial Bank in Saudi Arabia have very important Islamic banking sections. So when we're thinking about kind of the impact and the share of Islamic finance within the kind of overall banking and financial sectors, it's important not only to look at specifically Islamic institutions, but also these kind of hybrid examples. How compatible is Islamic finance with West Western-style capitalism, and how, how do the classical principles of Islamic jurisprudence treat capitalism? 
the pioneers of Islamic economics present Islam as an alternative or a third way to capitalism and socialism, both of which were influential in their thinking, but both of which they also criticised as being founded on what they saw as the erroneous philosophy of materialism. And so, you know, Islamic economics in its at its foundation was conceived of as, as an alternative to both capitalism and socialism. However, we see today, I think, that the Islamic banking and Islamic finance system more generally has effectively become incorporated into the global financial system. An interesting angle on which to, to think about this question is the situation in Saudi Arabia, which obviously is very much kind of seen as the heartlands of Islam, it's the site of Mecca and Medina. It is often you know, associated with perhaps a stricter form of, of Islam. Um, you know, the Sharia is declared to be the constitution in the basic law of Saudi Arabia. But, you know, if we look at both the Saudi history and, and today we find you know, the coexistence of Sharia-based Islamic finance institutions and also conventional banking. And if we look at the Saudi Vision 2030, which obviously, you know, is a key mega project, both for Saudi and, and, and the wider Middle East, the second pillar of the of Vision 2030 is the realisation of, of a thriving economy. And I think, you know, this is probably going to be achieved both through conventional and Islamic financial means. The Islamic Development Bank report, which I mentioned earlier, suggests that you know, Islamic finance can make a big contribution to mega projects such as NEOM. But clearly, uh, you know, a mega project like NEOM is also one which is integrated very much into kind of a global system. Yeah. There's clearly a desire to bring in much greater foreign investment you know, into NEOM and, and into the Saudi economy more, more generally. And so, you know, I would see this kind of you know, hybrid situation is set to continue and that Islamic finance can continue to exist as an important niche within the wider global financial system. Thank you so much, Fitz, for coming in and giving us such a clarifying and edifying talk on this subject. Well, thanks very much, Rose. It's been a real pleasure. You've been listening to Rose Johnson in conversation with Fitzroy Morrissey, academic and author of A Short History of Islamic Thought. This episode of Clarity Talks, a brand new series of podcasts from Diligencia, was presented by Rose Johnson and produced by me, Patrick Lord, Jonathan Siklos, Lorna Marsh and Aga Huzzard. Our music was composed by Fraser Williams with edits by Rose Johnson and Jonathan Siklos.